Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 292nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matthew Topley. Matthew is the founder and CIO of Lansing Street Advisors, an independent RA based in Ambler, Pennsylvania, that oversees $160 million in assets under management for 60 client households. What's unique about Matthew, though, is how he differentiates his firm by offering his high net worth clients opportunities to diversify their investment portfolios by syndicating private real estate partnerships that directly purchase individual multi-unit rental properties. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, after years of working as a trader, Matthew realized his career in retirement was dependent on the stock market and decided to diversify his investments in real estate so he could create a passive income for himself. How after years of investing in his own real estate properties and struggling with management and landlord duties that made it not so passive in reality, Matthew was introduced to truly passive real estate investing through syndication deals and was ultimately inspired to offer those opportunities to his clients. And how now Matthew has been able to so effectively differentiate his firm with its syndicated private real estate offering, even though in practice it tends to be no more than 10 to 20% of a typical client's portfolio. We also talk about how, despite his deep roots in portfolio management as a trader, Matthew has built the center of his virtual family office solution for high net worth clients around their financial planning advice instead. Why Matthew and his firm has chosen to outsource the financial plan preparation and the other back office services so they can focus their time specifically on client conversations around financial planning advice and their real estate investing opportunities. And the tools and systems that Matthew has had to implement in order to scalably execute on private real estate syndication deals with his high net worth clients on an ongoing basis throughout the year. And be certain to listen to the end, where Matthew shares how even though he has a background in institutional investing, he's still surprised by the number of products being pitched to high net worth clients that are not in their best interest or just flat out not good offerings. Why Matthew feels it's important for those entering the financial advisory industry to gain as much knowledge as possible early on and develop their own sense of self-awareness to create a better path for whatever a successful career would be for their unique skills. And why Matthew believes strongly in owning a firm is it gives him the opportunity to make his own decisions, the time to work on the aspects of the business he truly enjoys, and the opportunity to create a bigger impact on society. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matthew Topley. Welcome, Matthew Topley, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thanks, Mike. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's a real honor to be on. I've been listening to the podcast for a number of years. Oh, awesome, awesome. I I appreciate that, and and I'm I'm really glad that you're you're on the podcast and here to join us today. And I think like like talking about an what to me has long been an, a, a really interesting theme, which is how we start incorporating more real estate into client portfolios. It's 
to me, just one of the strange effects of the financial advisor world, I think very much comes from our roots of mostly kind of being being in the stock brokering slash brokerage business. You know, if you if you work for a brokerage firm, you sell brokerage products. Like that's just kind of how it works. So we sold stocks for a long time and then we sold mutual funds. And you know, now we may sell managed accounts with the ECFs and other stuff. And maybe certain broker dealers do a small subset of of like you know, private limited partnership deals that come through. We had we had some non-traded REITs for a while. But most of what we do are essentially the things that get bought and sold on brokerage platforms, you know, stocks and bonds and the like. And, and we basically don't live in the real estate world short of publicly traded REITs and may, maybe like a, a limited partnership thing that got packaged into a brokerage firm for, for a non-traded REIT structure. And obviously, if you look at you know overall wealth in the US, just overall dollars that are allocated, real estate is a, a, a trillions of dollars segment of the market that most of us as advisors just really don't participate in. Like we're not we're not built for it. We can't hold it on our platforms. I can't trade it in Orion. Like it's just it's it's not built for our current systems, and so we tend not to go there. And it, it's always, I think, like an interesting challenge with a lot of us advisors. Like you know, if you talk to a client who's fairly affluent and you ask, well, how they invest their dollars today, and they say, well, I own a bunch of apartment homes and 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 condos that I rent, it's it's just basically like a as an advisor, that's usually a moment of, well, not a prospect for me. Because <laughs> yeah. yep. you're you're in real estate. And if you're in real estate, you usually don't get out of real estate. And I don't have any real estate to sell you, and you're probably not buying my portfolio. So we're just gonna part ways here. And I know that you have spent a lot of time in your career and now in in an advisory business that you've been building, living very directly in this realm of putting together essentially private real estate deals for clients. And so I like I truly have spent almost no time living in that world at all in my career. And so just I'm genuinely excited to learn about like, how do you do direct real estate investing, putting together deals for clients? Like, how does that how does that work? Yeah. Well, I can tell you I arrived at doing real estate deals with clients like I arrived at a lot of other things in my career in my life uh, through failure. I, I was trying <laughs> to do fantastic. real estate on my own. You're referring to successful real estate investors when you approach them as advisor, usually aren't interested in my experience is the same as yours. Uh, and especially they don't like the stock market because there's a lack of control. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a bunch of ones and zeros. Like, yeah, I can go touch my real estate. I can look at it. No doubt. <laughs> I know exactly where it is. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, the 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 Beverly Hillbillies when Jed Clampett would go to the bank. He's like, <laughs> Mr. Drysdale, I'd like to see my money. Yeah, exactly. You just kind of want to see it. Like you can do that with real estate. It's really cool. Like I own that. It's the building over there. People rent it. Exactly. So when when I was in my former career in finance as a trader, I was doing real estate on the side for myself, which was a tremendous experience, but I wasn't very good at it. And I wasn't a very good landlord amongst- uh, So what were you doing? Like just when you say like, I I was doing real estate myself on the side, like just (laughs) what kind of stuff were you? I mean, there's the like- people who buy homes and flip them. There are the people who are trying to like leverage up big apartment buildings. There are, you know, folks that like rent multifamily homes. I live in one unit and rent out the other three. Like what was what was your real estate experience that you you started out with? Yeah, a little of all the above. So I was I did some flips, rehabbing homes in Philadelphia in the suburbs and flipping them. Uh, the biggest multi-units were five unit and eight unit. So mostly duplexes, townhomes and rehabs and flips. The most properties I ever had at once, I think was 10. Uh, and when I was doing that- It's not know, nine more than the one I live in. So <laughs> that's, 
That feels like a lot, but okay. So getting a sense of it. Okay. But at the time, uh, I, I was getting frustrated with it and met someone uh, who introduced me to the world of investing passively in private real estate worlds, much, in private real estate, much different than investing in a REIT or anything like that. It was deal by deal basis, investing in individual private real estate deals. And the explanation was, you know, this isn't how wealthy people invest in real estate the way that you're doing it, Matt. They invest in real estate with groups like the group I, I use, Capital Solutions, who, you know, are equity providers for commercial real estate and syndicate the money through investors uh, to raise for, you know, apartments, senior living, college dorms, or student housing, I should say. So way back in 2009, I started investing that way personally before I came to the family wealth world. I started investing personally through Capital Solutions in individual real estate deals. They were they were nice enough. Frank Simon, the founder, was nice enough to let me in under the under the limit bar just to try it out and invest in some deals. And I brought them in and introduced them some to some of my partners when I was a trader in a mutual fund company called Turner Investment Partners. And that was my introduction to investing passively in real estate. And I quickly discovered that it was a way better emotional and uh, more financially lucrative and less time spent by me and much more emotionally healthy to invest passively in the deals than to manage my properties myself. So I gradually started to invest more personally in passive deals and started to pare back my real estate that I own personally. That was my introduction to the world. So lots of questions here. First, I just you had I guess a a, a technical piece there that that you'd mentioned like like they cut you a break that you got to invest under under the limit. So what what is that what does that mean? So traditionally, if you go invest with with private real estate syndicators, a lot of them have a 250,000 minimum per deal limit. Not all of them for sure, but a lot of them. And most others will only go down to, you know, $100,000 per deal, you know, per family, per person, whatever it is. Okay. Cuz just from their end like, you know, I I want to raise enough money for a $10 million property. If I'm doing this 250k at a time, like I can get this done with 40 people. If I'm going to take smaller checks all of a sudden, like I got to find hundreds of people and that just gets burdensome when you're trying to be a real estate investor. So you tend to try to get fewer checks by having higher minimums. Correct. Exactly. And keep in mind, and I'll just use my deals with Capital Solutions as examples, right? We're we're playing in this sweet spot of two to $10 million raises where two million is a little bit too much for mom and pop high net worth investors that are doing themselves under ten million is a little too small for institutional. So there's this sweet spot in between the millions of people that are doing it mom and pop on their own or the hundreds of thousands of people and the big institutional money. There's this two to ten million dollar raise sweet spot where we primarily play in. So now I'm seeing this. That's why you're saying it's it's things like senior living residences, a big old college dorm, a mid-sized apartment building. Like the these are the kinds of things you can buy and build at two to ten million dollars. Correct. And right now we're primarily doing multifamily apartments and senior living. We have not done a we have not done a student housing deal in a number of years because uh, I, I'm personally a huge believer 
uh, when we get into the investing part of the conversation that demographics are destiny and demographics are a massive uh, part of all investing, but mm-hmm. especially real estate. Well, yeah, the, the most fundamental driver of what has what has supply and what and and what and more importantly, what's going to have demand. So, yeah, Correct. I get it. Like, I I can connect the dots on why senior living might be appealing. Something about like baby boomers yeah, <laughs> getting exactly. a little older. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, very good point, and 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 that's where I was going with it. We haven't done a student housing deal in a number of years because you see in the the dip that's going on in the college student demographics, and in the meantime, right. we're only in the probably fourth inning of the senior living. Uh, demographics, which you got it as baby boomers. But not only that, it's just longevity, period. A lot of what we see going on in the present real estate environment was the market was not ready for the increased longevity that's happening in the United States, right? right? I mean, if you look, you know, in our real estate deck, uh, one of our favorite charts we show people is this uh, American centenarians, the hockey stick spike that is coming in the number of people living to 100, it just explodes like a hockey stick in 2035. I mean, it goes from, you know, 100, 175,000 people a year living to past 100 to six, seven, 800,000 to millions eventually. And that's not even counting all the healthcare that's coming that, that could increase that even more so. Okay. So I kind of get the, the structure overall. So, and we'll get more into just like passive structures and how they how they work. But first, like take me back a little bit more to the direct real estate investing that you were doing, or is just like duplexes yeah. and townhomes got up to 10, 10 properties at what point at one point. So like tell me more about like what that what that looked like. Cause you had mentioned your your I mean your your background and I guess just some of the investable dollars you had came from being a trader and and doing trading and uh for a fund. So if that's your full-time job, like what was direct real estate investing for you? I mean, are you like I, you know, I I trade stocks by day and I, you know, fix real fix up real estate units by night? Like is was that the life you were living? Pretty much. And I was going to graduate school at night too. So I wouldn't recommend this for anyone in your audience. I don't know. I've already had, always had an entrepreneurial streak that's fully playing out now. And I've always had businesses going on the side or real estate going on the side. So that's how that started. I could tell you landlord stories that you would not believe. So, you know, my wife has helped me. So if we called her on speakerphone now, she would tell you it's the worst business in the world. So it's not easy to do on your own. Some people are great at it, much smarter than me at it, make a fortune at it. But it's not it's not an easy business. But in saying that, it is the last legal tax shelter left in the US. I know I'm not I'm probably not using the right language tax shelter, but it is an extremely tax efficient investment vehicle, yeah. especially for building a passive tax efficient income, getting back to the demographics and people living yeah. to 100. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the beginning of my presentation on real estate, I steal one of your partners at Buckingham, Larry Swedro, like the five modern realities like high equity valuations, low bond yields, high private equity and venture valuations connected to. And at the same time, we have increased longevity and increased healthcare inflation. So how are you going to create this passive tax efficient income? And the best way to do that, in my mind, is through real estate. So what did the, what did the economics 
look like on on these? I mean, as you're like doing your direct deals of you know the the duplexes and the townhomes and the and the rest, what do the economics look like? So most of those homes, I would have an equation out of a real estate book, and you would put 20, 25% down, and then you would figure out your, you know, what your cash flow is, what your yield is on the property. And inevitably, when you're doing small projects, you underestimate vacancies and upkeep, you know, uh, so you'll underestimate your cost on the maintenance side, and you'll underestimate your vacancies and you'll underestimate the time it takes to deal with tenants. So the real estate books are great, but there's a lot of gray area that does not come out exact. So I, I don't know if you remember your numbers at all, but it's like, like how did it flow for you? I mean, was it a, you know, I invested hoping to get an 8% yield, but by the time the vacancies came through, I was only making six. Like, is it is it that sort of dynamic or how did it show up for you? Yes, yeah, so there's two. I think there's two types of investments, just like there's two types of businesses. There's cash flow businesses, cash flow real estate, and then there's equity and equity businesses and equity real estate. Meaning, sometimes you know, in a faster growing part of Philadelphia suburbs or Philadelphia, you would be buying something betting on the equity play. Your cash flow would not be great. Maybe you're just covering your cost to carry, but you feel great that the area is going to take off and you're going to make your money on the back end in equity. So that was more than half of my properties. And then the other half, the the yields would be more like 5 6% instead of betting on double digits uh, because of the reasons I gave. At the end of the day, you, you make your money when the cycle is good and you have the increase in valuations that's really where you make your money. And most of the people I know have done well privately investing in real estate as opposed to the cash flows. So from your end, it was like when you were doing it directly, it was less about I'm going to I'm going to buy these things to make my you know cash on cash yield. Uh, well, I guess I don't, I don't know the time period that you're buying it, but like, why would I buy bonds at four when I can do this real estate at six and get a, and get a little more yield for you as much more of the you know, I get my yield, my yield pays my maintenance costs and my vacant covers my vacancy and handles my upkeep and and covers my mortgage and hopefully it's at least cash flow sustaining because at the end in a couple of years I get to sell this thing for up twenty, up thirty, up fifty, up a hundred, depending on how much real estate moves in whatever neighborhood it is. And 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 that's the big payoff moment when you get the exit at a much higher price. Yes. So a couple answers to that. I was doing it because my entire career depended on the stock market, right? I've never owned a bond in my life. I was a trader at a mutual fund company. So my career was depending on the stock market. All my personal investments were going into the stock market. So I did it as a diversifier and as if anything ever went wrong in my career or anything, could I create a passive income to live off off the properties? And, and secondly, I guess, retirement, right? Creating that passive income. And then I would say, there's all these tax advantages to real estate. One of it, which you know, is 1031 exchanges. And yep. we did 1031 exchange. You know, I don't want to act like some of these properties didn't do really well. They did. We 1031 exchanged one of our properties into a beach house. Uh, so that went extremely well. And we sold some other properties and put it towards the beach house and paying for the beach house, like, you know, in an account to pay the costs on the beach house. So when when the cycle went well at a group of other properties we owned in the city. So there's a lot of reasons that we did it, but primarily 
in my case, when I first got into it, it was to diversify away from my career and all my other investments, A, and then then create a retirement passive income. And it was something that you could create on the side as opposed to an operating business or something. That's really hard to do on the side, right? You can't you can't really do that on the side. But it sounds like you did have some like time obligations on the side if you if you were literally managing the properties yourself or were you in the world of like hiring property managers and subbing out to people who would who would do a lot of that work I did not get into hiring property managers till much later in the, okay. in the game I, I I'm down I only own I have another one for sale now I only own two properties as of a month or so from now and a property manager runs those two properties. So when you were doing this early on and you're, you know, five to 10 properties in, like, like how much, how much time were you spending, I guess, be, being a landlord and all the things from maintenance to upkeep to tenant issues to filling vacancies and the rest of what it takes to manage real estate? Yeah, I don't want to say it was more than 10 hours a week. It wasn't. And and on the trading desk, I was locked in during the day. I don't even remember having a cell phone on back then. It was like, Seven in the morning till four thirty, five o'clock. We were on lockdown in the investment center, like portfolio managers, analysts, traders. Right. So it's not like I was answering real estate calls in the trading desk. That wasn't happening. Right. So I had partners, and I had you know my wife was helping, and all these other things. So I wouldn't say more than ten hours. So ultimately, you kind of frame this as this didn't go well. So like, what didn't go well? I mean, did you have some? properties that went bust? Did you have a like disaster event? Like what what made it not go well if this did ultimately turn into a beach house at least? And these other, there's going to be some properties that end up sold, uh, you know, one of the, pro- that'll be paid off and everything that'll go well too. So I don't want to overplay that it was terrible. It was just, and we, I've heard this on your podcast many times from other advisors. It took me later in life to fully understand this, but I needed to focus 100% on one thing and not two, three, four, five different mm. things, right? So right now, my firm from the day I started it two years ago, I do nothing on the side. I don't touch my personal portfolio. I don't trade any of my own money because I don't want to be distracted from the clients and growing the business in any way, shape, or form. So it became not a big enough side business to make it. It was it okay. was distracting me from what I should concentrate on, which was being the best advisor I can humanly be, being the best investment person I can humanly be. It became a distraction. And when you have tenants, you invite these people into your lives if you're running the properties. <laughs> so you have new crazy uncles and new crazy aunts and new crazy friends because they're in your life. You know, unfortunately, if they have a lot of personal issues or now their personal or issues are your you know, personal issues. Correct. <laughs> That's exactly right. And again, we, we don't have enough time for me to tell landlord stories, but every landlord out there could tell you stories that you wouldn't believe. So now help me understand how is the investing dynamics different as you're doing this in this, you know, like private real estate syndicated deals structure? Yeah, massively different. So I do, we do deal by deal basis real estate structure. It's called Siri Structure LLC. It's the same way, similar way to my, the way the subadvisor has it set up for his direct investors. We're, we're just a sleeve of his investors, right? So Siri Structure LLC is there is subscription agreements to join. You have to be, you know, accredited or a qualified investor, depending on whose agreements you're using. 
Okay, so so there is a, a significant financial wherewithal because just at the end of the day, right? Literally, from a investment business end, like when you when you bring together a group of people to to invest in in a business like this, like you are literally selling like a security, an unregistered security, or which means like that's when the SEC has requirements about who's allowed to invest into this thing. Correct. So there is significant legal costs. There is significant compliance costs. No question about it due to SEC rules and state rules and everything else. Okay. So I guess I'm just wondering like, what the economics of these deals look like for you as an investor. I mean, just literally like for you, you said like you, you started with Capital Solutions Group. They let you, you know, do, do one under the, under the standard deal limit to, to let you get involved and see what it's like. So, I mean, just like what, what was it like? Like what, what returns were you seeing or what, how did cash flow and uh, was it still an equity style deal as you would frame sort of cash flow deals versus equity? So just how did the economic economics work once you're in this private real estate investing world as you were literally doing it yourself initially? Sure. So the first thing I would say is getting back to series structure LLC, the way the deals come out after you join through a subscription agreement, there's no blind pool fund, there's no committed capital. They come out deal by deal basis and you get to elect to be in or out of the deal. So you get a two-page summary of a deal and you get a 200-page full PPM, like uh, any other private investment. Our PPMs are extremely detailed and very professionally done by our sub-advisor. So you get a two-page summary, 200-page PPM, then you get to elect to be in or out of that deal. Now, to your point, I can't advertise or anything performance, but prior to me syndicating deals, uh, my returns were high teen IRRs net of fees. Yeah, and again, like we're this is this is not a solicitation for investments, a promise of returns or earnings you can get with any particular person. Correct. Again, like just you know, uh, introduce appropriate compliance disclaimers. Again, I'm I'm just trying to understand like just real world experience of of what happened for you as you started doing this, particularly since you were contrasting it with what it was like when you were doing it. You know, one one tenant by one tenant at a time. I was gonna say like hand to hand with your tenants. Uh, not that's that dangerous, hopefully. But so this high, like, you know, getting deals where at the end, you'd set a high teens IRR. So, you know, internal rate of return over the whole time period. So I'm presuming then that that is some combination of, I got a cash yield as I went, we did a sale at the end, then got some appreciation off the sale at the end. And so then I can do the math of the whole thing, my cash flows as it went, my sale value at the end over a time period to 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 calculate an internal rate of return. So you got it. I guess so I guess I'm wondering like how much of this was, you know, the the equity side of deals versus the cash flow side of deals and how long do they take to play out for you? Yeah. So good question. So uh, about half our deals traditionally are cash flow deals or what we call value add deals, where you're taking over apartment buildings. They're already 95% occupied. You're upgrading all the units. You're raising all the rents. Those deals tend to cash flow pretty early uh, in the first six to nine to 12 months of taking over the building. You start getting quarterly cash on cash returns, you know, i.e. dividend yields or distributions in real estate's case, this gets back to why it's such a tax efficient investment, the way real estate works. As you know, you'll be getting that cash on cash and showing losses on your K-1. Keep in mind, every one of these deals is going to kick off a K-1. 
which adds another layer of complexity, right? So so half the deals are, are cash on cash deals with the goal of upgrading all the units, raising all the rents, and either refining the building or exiting the building altogether, selling it. The second type of deal is new construction, which we're doing a lot of in the last 18 months coming out of COVID. New construction, as you would guess, takes 18 months to 24 months just to build and start to lease up. So you're seeing no cash flow for the first 18 to 24 months, at least, if not longer in some cases, like senior living. So new construction, no cash flow for the first couple of years. At the end of you know getting it to a certain lease level after the construction's done and everything, then a decision is made whether to refinance right away or exit right away, we have flipped a number of new construction projects. If not, that will also start kicking off cash flow, right? If the building's 80, 90, 100% leased, and then we'll make a decision on, or the subadvisor will make a decision on whether to refinance the property, exit, a prop, exit the property at the proper time. I will tell you, on top of a huge differentiator on our end, there's a couple of huge differentiators that fit into your question. One is we are geographically located all over the country. So we have deals all over the country, huge geographic diversity, as you would guess, we're especially in fast growing demographic areas now. The second big differentiator is we do a lot of deals, like 10 deals, 12 deals per year. So you can get a lot of diversity by spreading your money out into 10 plus deals rather than investing with a local developer in one or two deals. The next big differentiator is it's not buy and hold real estate called a race to get your money principal back. So in three to five years, the goal is always to refinance the property or exit the property. We call it a race to get the investor's principal back. So deal by deal basis is a big differentiator. Geographic diversity is a big differentiator. Number of deals, which is a lot, is a big differentiator. And then it's not buy and hold real estate, three to five years looking to refire exit. Why is that so important on the tax side? If you can picture this, Mike, Michael, if you're in 10 deals, Michael is in 10 deals, he has 50,000 in every deal. You have cash flow coming out of five of them. Three of them are under construction. The fourth one's close, you know, maybe halfway leased. And the first one you invested in, there's an exit. So you have a sale. You end up getting a 18 IRR over the course of three or four years. So you almost double your money, if my math is correct. You exit, you get an event, you have 50000 in. Let's say you get almost $100,000 back. There has been no income tax paid on, in most cases, not all cases, on any of your cash flow because you're offsetting it with depreciation and construction costs and all these other things. So it's long-term capital gains when you exit that deal. Most of the gains are long-term capital gains. Actually, all the gains in most cases are long-term capital gains. But you have nine other deals going that are kicking off losses that offset that gain. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Because you're getting you're getting enough depreciation flowing through from all the rest of the deals, particularly since you've specifically put some dollars into build style deals. So they have huge negative losses in the first few years because you're doing the build and you've got all the construction costs and the rest. So you're kicking off enough losses from those to net against the sale that has the gain. And then I'm presuming and then you and then you come back and say that went so well, would you like to, you know, would you like to double down? Would you like to take your hundred K and put it into the next deal? And and now you end out with a continuous rolling series of deals after you've been doing this for a while. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. And that is what virtually 80, 90% of my clients roll every 
piece of cash flow and every refinance and every exit into more deals because they're all in an age range where they're still working, not all of them, but most of them, they're all creating this future passive tax efficient income from building up their real estate portfolios at a, as a portion of their overall investment portfolio. But that's exactly right what you just said. Okay. So I kind of get the flow and the uh, and the gist now, and I guess just thinking mechanically down to the the real estate level at just these kinds of of IRR opportunities. It, it sounds like you're you're essentially in a world of like, look, I'm I'm getting I'm getting some high, I may be getting some high single digit cash flow yield from cash flow flowing properties. I'm doing a bunch of either building or upgrading of properties, which is going to boost the value of the property. I probably have a little bit of leverage on this as well, which, you know, let's let's be take a moderate return and make it a bit bigger with uh with leverage because, you know, my return on my return on assets is one thing, but my return on equity is higher because I debt finance this. And so you package all of that together and you know, I get some yield from from the cash flow. I get some return from the appreciation. I get some juice, as it were, from the leverage. And now on the sudden I can get into the teens on an IRR pretty quickly. Yeah, and and absolutely. And let's just take that, park that in your mind, and then think about like Vanguard or BlackRock or anybody's capital asset pricing models on projected returns the next 10 years. Yep. And that was prior to this correction, no doubt. Uh, but if you look at the fixed income side of the equation, now it's gotten better since bonds have had such a correction, but prior to this recent correction, you know, Vanguard or BlackRock or any of the big firms' capital asset pricing models on pro- projected 10-year returns, I mean, the ag, they were talking one and a half to two and a half percent. So you're losing money versus inflation. Uh, so for families that can afford a portion of their portfolio to be a liquid, right? Because that's the trade. The illiquidity is the trade or is the trade off. If we were doing half the IRRs uh, that we've been doing, it's still going to look really, really good versus bonds. And if you look at projected equity returns the next 10 years, as we revert to the mean after having this massive 10-year run in the S&P of 14.5% compound returns, real estate looks like a very viable option. Now, as you know better than anyone, being the planning guru for all advisors, that it's all about risk versus return. And I would say, so my my brain's just like risking this thing up now. I have yeah. learned like IRRs in the teens come with come with a wee bit of risk. So, <laughs> yes. I mean, you're doing this. So, and you know, you you've lived trading desks. So I'm sure you you've lived your not only your fair share of risk, but you know the the you can't be a you you can't live on a trading desk very long without you know really learning the mantra of protect your capital and protect your capital or you don't get to keep playing the game. So like how do you look at and think about the risk in this? Or I guess like first of all, just where where is my risk at the end of the day? Like how does this go sideways on me? And sure. then how do you how do you think about it as someone who's lived you know trading desk level of risk? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll start at the high level and get granular on our particular deal. So if you look at a 20-year risk return chart and standard deviation on the bottom, annualized return going up the side, you'll find private real estate in most cases is slightly uh, higher standard deviation than bonds with a much higher return. And it's more tax efficient, which doesn't show up on the chart, but it's very true. And then if you look at publicly held REITs, versus private real estate correlation chart, you'll find that publicly held REITs right now, 
today have like 80% correlation to the S&P. I think over the long term, it's like maybe 60, 70, but it's 80 right now in the last 12 to 24 months. If you look at private real estate, it has a negative 0.20 correlation to public markets. So diversifier, the historical textbook, standard deviation, and annualized returns works. Now let's get into picking the right subadvisor is the only way this works because like anything, real estate can get really speculative, right? You you can make an argument that my investors missed the warehouse boom, right? That has happened, especially exploded during COVID. So we don't do speculative real estate, really. We don't do raw land. We don't do a lot of, we don't do any industrial. I think we did one industrial deal. Uh, we don't do any warehouse. And I know people have made a lot of money doing this, but none of our real estate is really speculative. Let me start with that. And then secondly, our subadvisor capital solutions is number one is protection of principle. Protection of principle, protection of principle, protection of principle, reasonable rate of return second, growth is third. So you'd have to refer at, refer to them and reach out for their long-term historical returns, right. but they do not have a history of losing any principle through 25-year track record. I was just going to say overall, this like this to me is starting to very much feel in the in the realm of you know if you're it, well, I just it's core if you're doing this privately and ultimately like you're routing dollars to a real estate investment firm you know you you've been doing this with Capital Solutions that this just really quickly comes down to like. <laughs> or have you have you found someone who's any good at actually managing real estate right just like they. <laughs> They, they do or do not do it well. And it seems like, in, in essence, that means you're going to have a really significant burden on yourself, either as an investor or particularly as an advisor, doing this for your clients of basically the, the vetting and due diligence of the firm that's going to manage the deals for you. 100%. That is exactly where I was going with that. And I know now, because of those cap asset pricing models, I know a lot of people have chased real estate, not through advisors so much, but I don't, I can't speak in an educated manner on some of these firms that are really heavily advertised on social media and where you can invest in private real estate deals through some kind of fund structure, uh, very, very small amounts. I would be leery of them. I don't, I don't know the returns or everything or anything, but in my 20 year history now of private real estate, you really have to get the right sub-advisor. And we do use a couple other sub-advisors outside of Capital Solutions, but the large majority of, of our deals are Capital Solutions. And, and it was like, how did you find or vet or choose them? I mean, like, how, how did you get to, these are the guys we're, we're you know, will, willing to hook our wagon to? Well, I had, I had a great testing stage because when I got introduced to them, right, I was not in the private wealth world. I was not in the family wealth world. So I personally, with my own money, started investing with them. And then I introduced them to partners in my old firm who started investing with them. So I had, before I got into the private wealth world, I had six, seven years of experience investing with them. And then in that time frame where I personally was investing with them, I got to know them really, really well. I got to know the process really, really well. And then I got to know a lot of other people who had had success investing with them in their history. And uh, Philadelphia, we, we can get into it, but I mean, it's a very small town for a big city, to say yep. the least. Uh, it was probably the most parochial city in the country. Everybody kind of knows each other and stays here. So it's it's a very small town feel. Okay. 
So now help us understand further how like how this works with clients. My understanding is, yeah, this started with you did it personally, but then ultimately you've been building an advisory firm and this is part of the offering for clients. So like just how does this come together to do this with clients? Yep. So very good question. When I got into the private wealth world, there was heavy alternative use from super high net worth clients. So even over 10 million, but especially over 20, 30 million coming out of 08, I entered the private uh, family wealth world in 2014 after 17, 18 years in the institutional world. And there was heavy investments from those families in alts. When I say alts, it's traditional private equity, venture, uh, hedge funds, private lending, all those things. My due diligence when I decided to make the move out of trading to the private wealth world was I was inside the sausage factory on Wall Street. The trading desk I was on, greatest experience in the world, generated $100 million in commissions a year. We were like, top 50 commission generators for a lot of big US equity trading desks on Wall Street. So we were the buy side, Wall Street's the sell side. We were the client. We were generating, we had years generating $100 million in commissions. My thought process when I entered the family wealth world is these families are paying a lot of money in fees for these alts and they're not getting the returns Mm-hmm. that were promised. And most importantly, you know this better than anyone from the planning side, all of our bills in the high net worth world, but especially the super high net world, worth world, the biggest bill is your tax bill. And all these alternative investments were super tax inefficient. So when I did my due diligence, I'm like, wait a minute, these family offices and they have these families all in these products that are high fee, poor tax efficiency. So net of fees, net of taxes, not getting what was promised and not having a lot of success. And I don't want to, there's a lot of good PE firms out there, a lot of good venture firms, a lot of good hedge funds. But in my experience with the families that I was getting introduced to, they were not having a lot of success in alts at all. Now, keep in mind, we were also going through the biggest long only 60-40 S&P 500 run ever. We were at the beginning of one of the biggest runs ever. That's, that's true too. But I just could not side by side knowing how uh, my sub-advisor executed deals on an after fee, after tax, and risk-adjusted basis, and I still do it to this day, comparing it to other alternatives, I could not come up with a reason to not choose real estate over those other alternatives. And I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that real estate goes through cycles like anything else, that the IRRs of the last 10 years will not be the IRRs of the next 10 years. I don't want to sell this as some kind of no-risk home run. But when I side-by-side, because we know in our business, all returns are relative. When I side-by-side it versus all the other alts out there, after fee, after tax, risk-adjusted, I've done it a million times. I can't come up with a reason to not choose real estate. And it gets back to more than anything else for wealthy families, the tax efficiency. So how does this work? I mean, I like I know how it works for clients in brokerage accounts. You know, you... You transfer a million dollars, and then I enter my trades for, for my for my portfolio. And you know, custodial systems make these things happen, and your your positions are in your account. So, like, how does this work? Yeah, it's as not an easy. advisory firm when you're doing this with clients. Yeah, it's not easy. It's quite the administrative task, and it's quite the legal and compliance task. I put that out there right away. But here's here's how it works. So, number one, you need to set up a series structure 
LLC. You, you call your law firm on that one. Uh, and then how does it work mechanically for the clients? So again, it's not a blind pool fund. It's not I put in, I, I commit a million dollars and you draw the money whenever you want. We did not want any parts of that. We want a deal by deal basis, especially coming out of 08 when people were getting, the world was ending and people were getting capital calls in private equity and real estate. We didn't want any parts of that. So it's deal by deal basis. So a deal comes out again, two pager and a PPM. So now you sign the subscription agreement. You're in the group that's allowed, uh, able to do the deals. You now get every PPM that comes out. Goes out to the clients. They get seven to 10 days before settlement. They'll have questions for us that will get answered. They'll do their own due diligence, especially new clients who are getting used to the process. And then we will have a closing, just like a closing on a house where we will syndicate the money. So I get an allocation from the subadvisor. I'm sorry, I should have said that first. So I get an allocation from the subadvisor for the sake of argument to use a round number. Let's say it's a million dollars. Our PPMs go out to all our clients. And then the clients get a election form, it's called, from us, where they elect to be in or out of the deal and for how much. And they have to send that back in order to participate in the deal. And that also allows us to see how much money we're raising for the deal. So we raise the money uh, through the clients, syndicate the money. Again, to keep it simple, let's say we raise a million dollars. That they wire into our real estate account and we come over to the sub-advisor as one ticket under Lansing Street Advisors. Now it gets difficult on the back end, right? Now we use Juniper Square software on the back end. So private equity, real estate software, well-known growing firm. Juniper Square handles a lot of the back end. 24-7 transparency, by the way. If you go to our website, there's a drop down. You click on real estate and the clients go in to Juniper Square and everything they ever signed is there. Every piece of cash flow is there. Any exits, the IRR is on there. Like it's, it's really a transparent process for private investing. Okay. So to make sure I, I, I kind of understand I, just the, the flow and the mechanics again. So, so your advisory firm sets up an initial LLC structure that sounds like is essentially going to be sort of the, the conduit and the holder of the deals. Correct. There's no money in the thing yet. It's just like it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an empty investing vehicle so far. Clients sign up a subscription agreement that says, I want to be an investor, or at least eligible to be able to be an investor through the LLC into these real estate deals. And I'm presuming that's essentially the point that uh, you determine if they're a accredited or qualified yep. investor yep. to be able yep. to do it. So you can only only do it with your more affluent clients. So once they've signed that, then like they're ready and eligible to do a deal whenever it is that a deal comes along. Correct. So then we just hang out a while until eventually the investment firm says, you know, whatever is, uh, you know, we got an opportunity to take down this big old apartment building. It costs $10 million. We're going to raise this from a whole bunch of advisors or investors or wherever they get their dollars. So you get some phone call like, Matthew, we're raising $10 million in total. You can have up to a million of this piece of the action if your clients want in. So Correct. here's some paperwork about it. So you get the private pl private placement memorandum, you get this, the deal summary. You are now, I guess I was going to say racing, maybe that's too harsh, but like now, <laughs> now the clock is running for you to get this out to clients and say, hey guys, we've got a deal. He, like here's what it is from the from the firm. Here's the, you know, whatever the, what we'd be buying and where we'd be buying it and what the investment opportunity is. As, as you said, uh, 
200 page PPM. So you can go really far down the due diligence, depending how much clients want to go down that due diligence route. Correct. The clients then decide, do I want to do this? And if so, how much? So are you giving them some parameters of like, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client, like, you know, it's a minimum of $50,000 contribution if you want to participate in this thing. And, you know, you're, you can do up to 200000 but not more than that, because we want to make sure more of our clients have room. So like, are there, are there limits like that for you? Yeah. So here's how we handle it with clients because there's two types of clients in the real estate deals. There is my full advisory clients, full family office slash family office slash advisory clients where we're managing their whole life, right? And we have a specific financial plan with a specific goal on how much real estate fits into their portfolio. So that's one type of client. And then we have another subset of clients, uh, a group that just does real estate deals with us. So we have a fair amount of people that just do real estate deals with us. That's a different conversation because I am not, we are not doing all their financial planning, insurance, investment portfolios in the public markets, et cetera. They're just doing real estate deals with us. So that's a different animal and they have different personal goals. A lot of them have a set number of dollar amount that they want to get to work in real estate. Uh, Some of them exited a business and want to put X amount of real estate or some of them get distributions once a year out of their business or a bonus from their corporate life and they want to put X amount every year in the real estate deal. So they're the two subgroups of real estate investors. Okay. I mean, how do you just allocate the dollars? I mean, you know, if you've got a, a good number of clients that want to do this, just I'm presuming you, you can easily have an environment where, you know, they want to put in more than the million dollars or, you know, you, you got one big client who just got a giant bonus is like, eh, I'll just take down the whole thing. Right. So that conversation, ha- well, two, an- two, two parts to that answer. The giant client that takes down the whole thing, that conversation happens before they ever become a client, meaning if it's a big enough investor, you have to fairly allocate. So the real estate deal goes out. You're very on point there, Michael, that we could very easily end up what's called oversubscribed on the deal, right? So I'm raising a million dollars. We get all the election forms back and a million five comes back. We cannot favor any one investor. We have to prorate the deal evenly through, uh, it's a longer conversation on the subscription agreement, but we have to prorate the deal. Luckily for us, we just started two years ago. We don't run into that situation a lot, but that is mechanically compliance-wise how that would go down. If I had a huge client call me and say, I want to do $500,000 a deal, it would be really difficult for us to do that, not that we wouldn't try to talk them yeah, into yeah. less less money per deal and doing more deals. Yeah, exactly. Nice problem to have from a business opportunity end, but like, yo, you're kind of crowding out the rest of our clients in a not cool way. Which compliance actually does a really good job of handling that through the rules that are in place that you can't crowd out the other clients. Uh, but again, we're so early in the ballgame. Because if you end out oversubscribed, your your obligation as a firm is to prorate everybody down until you Correct. get to whatever your, your allocation was. Correct. So who who gets notified of the deals though? I mean, I'm imagining failing anything else like, oh, it turns out my big client is the only one who, who signed up, which may be because they're the only one I told about the deal. Like, do you do you have like a firm obligation that literally like every client who is part of the subscription agreement like has to be notified about every single deal so they all always get their opportunity to thumbs up or thumbs down on it? 
Yes to 95% of that. And the reason I'm hedging myself is because we did do a few small opportunity zone deals that really don't work for smaller investors. If you, if you know the opportunity zone deals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It yep. just, just if I'm doing $50,000, $25,000 a deal, I'm just using that as an example. And we, it, your money's tied up for 10 years and like that, they don't make any sense for, for a small investor in our, right. in our professional opinion and in the sub-advisor's professional opinion and in our accountant's professional opinion, like yeah. everybody's professional opinion, okay. they don't make sense except for the family wealthy enough that was having an exit and things like that. Yes. Okay. So short of just like this deal is patently not a good fit for you in the first place. Yeah. You essentially have an obligation of everybody who signed the subscription agreement to be able to do the deals has to get notified of the deal opportunity and get the paperwork and then either says they want in or not. And if they do, they fill out their election form and then you do or do not find out that you have undersubscribed, fully subscribed or oversubscribed. Are there... So I get like, if you get the full million, you get the million. If they sign up for one and a half million, well, everybody's getting two thirds of their allocation because we're we're capped at a million. Correct. Like what happens if you don't have a million dollars worth of interest coming in? I've been working with the sub-advisor so long that we kind of, I'd let them know because they're, they always have plenty of investors. That hasn't happened though, like knock on wood. So there's enough communication with the sub-advisor and myself where we don't get into a situation where we're crazy over or undersubscribed, but it could happen in the future. Are there literally adverse consequences for you if you if you don't subscribe fully, or does this just basically come down to well, if y'all can't raise the dollars when you get an opportunity, like we're just going to go work with someone else who is more reliable at bringing investor dollars when we have an opportunity for advisors who are doing this, like that that that's part of your risk. If you're if you're not filling the deals, there's a risk that they might not want to work with you anymore. Like that's that's the risk you're going to run as an advisor if you do this. Totally, I would say yes. And 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 the do, getting back to the due diligence for the advisors is the key. But the other hard thing for advisors doing this is, I think in their case, they'd have to find multiple sub-advisors to get enough diversity and to mm. get into enough deals. There's not a ton right. of sub-advisors out there doing 10, 12 deals a year. There's just not. I mean, traditionally how advisors get themselves, I don't want to say get themselves into trouble or or it lends itself to more risk is they have investors who want to get into real estate and they end up doing one or two deals with a local, concentrated local sub-advisor. And then you're stuck in one or two deals, right? And if one doesn't go well, you know. If they made a bad call on one, you've you've quickly got a problem. And if you want to diversify all of a sudden, like now you've got a whole bunch of sub-advisors to manage and a whole bunch of different, you know, People and systems and paperwork, whatever else, just I, I can I can sort of mentally envision how this gets inefficient relatively quickly if you have to do this across a whole bunch of different investment firms at once. Yeah, and I would say this, Michael, our subadvisor, just just to give you a good feel on the complexities of this, our subadvisor was approached by advisors a number of times over their 20 year plus existence and no advisors were able to take it across the finish line and form something like this. Hmm. Now, in saying that, I think like everything else in the world, it's getting more institutionalized, meaning, you know, look at single family rentals, look at industrial properties, like look at uh, private equity 
uh, creating product like Hamilton Lane that you could that you could go directly to family offices and high net worth RIAs where you can see your quarterly performance in Schwab. Like everything's becoming more institutionalized. So I think this is going to become more institutionalized too. Meaning it's you're going to have to participate in it sooner or yeah. later because it's an asset class that that is kind of hard to avoid. <laughs> So then continuing the just the flow of the mechanics. So I've got my subscription agreement with my folks. We get an opportunity from the from the real estate firm for you know, one million or whatever my allocation is. So all the clients get the paperwork about the opportunity. Everybody has to reply in seven or ten days or whatever it is with the to, to say, here's how much I'm I'm electing in. You find out if you're fully subscribed or a little over or under. And then and so that sounds like then like some period of time later, I don't know if this is just a few more days or longer, you you have a closing event. So Correct. Okay, you said you were in. Turns out we were a little oversubscribed. You can't do your whole 100K. You can do 80K Here's Correct. or whatever it comes out to be. So here's the directions. Like You need to move $80,000 into our you know LLC structure by this date. You gather all that together, and then you've got now a million-dollar balance in your LLC, and you call up Capital Solutions and say, okay, we got our million-dollar check. We're sending you over our million-dollar allocation. Yep, we're, we're in the same bank. We've we ledger it right over. Uh, oh, that makes it easier. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did that on purpose to make it a. I, I was saying, possible, I'm assuming that's not a yeah. coincidence. Yep. Yeah. So exactly, that's exactly how it happens. Like settlement on a house. And what's the timeline for that? It's like deal paperwork comes out. You get seven to ten days for the election form, and like how how long until my client has to wire the money? How long until then? I I've got to move the money from my my LLC over to the real estate firm. Seven to ten days. Also, it's a small window to close. So seven to 10 days for clients to do the election paperwork. Then you tell them how much of it they got to take down. And then you got basically one more week to get all this done. Correct. Now there's clients who are first starting out that like, I would be the same way. Actually, I was the same way when I was doing it personally. Like they want to talk about every deal and understand it and everything, just anything else. And then you have clients who have done literally 25 plus deals and they're just rolling into as many deals as possible. Mm So help me understand is how this works then from the firm end, because yep. maybe this is just my you know my, my bias of being comfortable in my, the way I'm used to doing things. But like I'm just envisioning a world where like you know I thought I was going to have a light month coming up here in August, but <laughs> it turns out like Capital Solutions calls me on August second and says like got a great deal queuing up, so you're going to be spending the next two weeks going out to all your clients and tell them about the deal and then fielding all their phone calls and all their questions and all the stuff. And then the second week of August, you're going to be getting all this money and doing all these wires and movements. And you know you don't get to control that because you only find out when they're going to send in the deal. And that they're, they're just like these like flurries of conversations and activity and paperwork. And then it's done and you don't even necessarily know when it's coming. Like that just feels like some activity bordering on chaos to me. It's like, am I unfairly projecting this or is this like, this is what you get when the, when you, when you move in the territory, like how how does this show up for the firm as, as deals just appear? Yeah. So the flurry of activity is real. I've been doing it for a number of years. A lot of my clients, 80% of my clients are so used to the process now that it's not this massive flurry of calls. It's, it's always 20, 25% of the clients there's calls there's discussions, 
I quite frankly enjoy talking about it. Uh, I, you know, my background, my my Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours is not on the planning side, like a lot of uh-huh. people in the business, and like yours, mine's the investment side. It's such a huge differentiator for the firm. If you asked our three differentiators, this would absolutely be one of them. It's well worth the time. Mm. The harder part's the back office, which my partner Mike Topley, my nephew, takes care of that because you don't want me running the back office. That would be not good. So, and the back office is just the the paperwork and the filing and the Correct. tracking and like Correct. did the right people sign the right forms and then complete them on the right timeline and then put the money in the right place by the right deadline. Is that what Juniper Square essentially manages for you? Like this, I'm, I'm imagining like the, the Orion of yeah, yeah. The, of the real estate side of like this, yeah. this is the software that tracks and reports and makes sure all the stuff is done. Yes. Uh, now in saying that, I mean, there's still a fair amount of input on our end, but I would imagine Juniper so. Square is still, you know, a massive. Okay. You know, it's like everything else, right? Software is probably yeah. replacing people. Software is eating the world. Whatever language you want to use yeah, for yeah. it, it's a lot of input on our side. A lot of lot of work for Mike, and we'll eventually be hiring someone in the very near future. And part of their job would be taking over some of this. But again, it's a big differentiator. It's uh, been a huge plus for the firm. But I don't want to under, I want advisors to understand it is a lot of work. It is a lot of compliance. It is a lot of legal documents. It is a lot of administrative work. So that I want to be clear about. So then how do you get paid on this? How does this work for you as the firm aside from, you know, cool cool to be putting together deals? How does the, the compensation, the revenue work for your advisory firm in this? Yeah. So total transparency, there is two layers of fees. So when I say net of fees, IRRs, I mean two layers of fees, two two net layers of fees. Uh, so you have the sub-advisor whose their fees are all waterfalls. For example, this is not exact, but over an eight IRR, the split might be 80-20. Over a 15 IRR, might go 60-40. Over a 20 IRR, might go 50-50. So they're all waterfall splits on the. Wait, uh, say that again. Just how how do they work? I just even for your example, I'm just processing like numbers and splits. Sure. So the subadvisor is all waterfalls. So as an example, I used you had the the investor has to get an eight IRR eight IRR net before they make any money, right? So the split might be after an eight IRR, eighty percent to the investor, twenty percent to the sub-advisor. And then there's another split at a 15%, let's call it waterfall, that might go 60% to the investor, 40% to the sub-advisor. And then you get over a 20 IRR and it might be a 50-50 split. So unlike a lot of other investment vehicles, the sub-advisor does not get paid until they go over their hurdle rate. If you're familiar with hurdle rates in private investing, our sub-advisors hurdle rates are 8% plus. So you, they do not get paid unless they go over the hurdle rate. So I guess, you know, in in all the classic dynamics of those sorts of performance-based fees, you know, I I don't pay until I'm getting a good return. You're very incentivized to grow it well because you're, you're participating in the upside. And you also potentially have an incentive to take more risk because one of the greatest ways to get to the top split is just to like leverage the the genius out of it. Bingo. And a great point that I was going to hit on. This is why advisors who go down this road really have to dig in and do their due diligence on the real estate sub-advisor because the commercial real estate world, now we, we do not do any retail, well, very little retailer office, even prior to COVID. 
literally like one out of every 50, one out of every 100 deals might be retail or office. But that's very economically, it's tied to the economic cycle, obviously, office and retail, Mm -hmm. even putting COVID aside. But you have to do your due diligence, yes, because most real estate deals are waterfalls and you get younger people in the real estate world who've not made a lot of money already and they're going to be shooting for the big hit and uh, you got to be really careful of it. So, so one layer of fees is the sub-advisor. That's essentially their hands-on management of find the deals and put them together and invest the thing and just literally execute the process and make sure this, this comes out well. So then I'm assuming the second layer of fee is, is your, your layer. Yep. So how does that work? So 1% AUM fee. Okay. And then we have one waterfall. After the deal closes, everything over a net 8% to the client goes 90% to the client, 10% to Lansing. Okay. So let me just be very clear about something. There's no double charge for our full advisor clients, right? We're not charging them an advisor AUM fee and charging them 1% on this real estate fund. It's just a separate vehicle. Totally. They don't get charged an AUM fee under the firm structure and then a fund fee. But again, getting to my Wall Street background, I I took my former firm, I took all the clients out of most of the stuff that has two layers of fees. And the only thing that I believe in, because we were saying we want to get, we want this as a bond replacement. Yes, it's a liquid. Yes, it has more risk. But we were in a super unique bond environment where the math, not predictions, not not analysts, the math on bonds was telling us seven years ago that you are not going to be able to keep up with inflation. Right. You're not going to be able to get these returns. And if we do half the returns that the subadvisor has done in the past, literally, if we cut their IRRs yeah. in half, it's- we felt really good about the returns. And we still feel that way for the next decade. And then the second thing I would say just to so many advisors listening is you can't do this. There's too much cost on your end and there's too much work on your end and there's too much uh, compliance work and everything else on your end to not charge a fee. I mean, I just, that's the honest answer is that it's a win-win because the client has done extremely well and we hope to do well with it. Uh, but my startup costs and everything else, I mean, we're, you know, obviously the first couple of years, there's a ton of startup costs. So how do you blend this with the rest of investing for clients? So you said like you're also doing broader investment management for clients as well, not only the real estate. So if, I mean, if I'm a a multi-million dollar client coming to you, like, you know, do you put 90% of my dollars into your, I'll call it air quotes, like traditional (laughs) brokerage account traded investment portfolio and 10% to real estate? Is it 80-20? Is it much more specific to the clients? Like how does this work in in the split and allocation of dollars? I'm thinking, at least in terms of clients that are working with you on a full advisory basis. Obviously, you said some clients literally just come to you for the real estate deals. So obviously, yep. they're they're just doing the real estate deals. But like full advisory clients where this is part of your investment offering and you have to figure out how they're getting allocated. Yeah. And I want to be crystal clear the beginning of this answer is we are uh, independent RIA fiduciary first and we're a virtual family office. We call ourselves first we're not a real estate firm. So real estate is a sleeve of our investment process, but our primary business is virtual family office, independent RA fiduciary, right? So a sl- it depends on the clients. Yeah. 
discovery meeting. It depends on their risk profile. It depends on, most importantly, probably on their ability to be illiquid. So a lot of boxes to check uh, before we decide how much of an allocation should go towards real estate. And is there a typical domain of where it ends out? I mean, it's like, is it 10-ish percent for most clients? Is it like 40-ish percent for, for most clients? Like, where does it tend to land? 40, definitely no. Tends to land between 10 and 20. 10 is more, you know, the more likely number, but it tends to land between 10 and 20. Keep in mind, again, picture five, six, seven years ago, cap asset pricing models, two, three years ago. Some of the more aggressive clients that would be 80-20, traditional 80% mm-hmm. stock market, 20% bonds, would much rather, you know, once we lay out and go through the whole real estate process and or, or a pitch book and everything, I don't want to call it a pitch book, the, the explanation of the fund, and they know they're going to work another 20 years, they have plenty in the emergency fund, they're aggressive, score a 90 and risk allies, they're more likely to say, what the heck? do I want to be in bonds for? You know, mm. why wouldn't I be 80% stocks and 20% real estate now? So functionally for you, this is, you seem to frame this more of a functionally a bond alternative, even though by classic return profiles, this is a like higher return than traditional equities, which at least I'm putting on like my traditional financial planner hat means more risky than equities. So it tends to appear as almost a bond alternative, even though functionally it's got a risk return profile that looks more like equity, aggressive equity, even beyond that. Yeah. And I, it depends on the client when you say we're framing it as a bond alternative. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to actually like <laughs> Im- imply how we're making investment pitches, but I, I mean, just functionally, like you're kind of talking about it, like clients are sort of carving it from a fixed income e sort of bucket even though we're ending out with what are classically equity or even high equity returns. Yeah. Not what we usually associate with fixed income returns. Correct. And we, we talk down the returns. We think, you know, the last 10 years was extremely good, just like the S&P, there'll be somewhat of a reversion to the mean. We still think returns will be good, not as good as the last 10 years, but right. there's a lot of data, right? I mean, if you look at during COVID, uh, the Vanguard Reed Index was down 30% from March to May of 2020. Right. I want to say that was close to double the S&P. Don't quote me on that. Everybody checked their data there, but uh, maybe the S&P had bounced back somewhat, but it kind of makes sense, right? With with the REITs, with the well, retail. Yeah. All of a sudden it was like, oh my, oh my gosh, we're all leaving offices. Correct. If we don't come back, like all this real estate, commercial real estate is going to blow up. So yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember the discussion quite clearly in real time. So uh, not my particular landing fund, but our sub-advisor who has, you know, a lot, a ton of properties at the same exact time, keep in mind, they do not have, they have barely any office, barely any retail. They had collected 91% of the rents in March, 87% of the rents in April, and 89% of the rents in May. So this was at the height of the COVID crisis. So real estate, everything, the the usual cliches about real estate, about all real estate being local, and then the different risk profiles around the different types of real estate. I mean, we are in the middle income multifamily apartment space and the middle income senior living space right now Mm. on all our deals. And because it's the risk profile of our sub-advisors clients, including myself, including Lansing Street Advisors. We are protection of principle first. 
So now help us understand just the overall offering to clients. I mean, you had said like, ultimately, this real estate investing is a sleeve of the overall portfolios may only be 10 or 20% allocations, but it's a material differentiator for you because most of other advisory firms don't show up this way at all. But overall, as you framed it, like the core of what we do is we're an independent RIA functioning as a virtual family office. So like, what is that offering? I mean, just like, what is, what does that mean to you? Like what, yeah. what yep. does it mean to be a virtual yep. family office? The first thing I would say, as much as I, I, I mentioned that my background is all on the investment side, it's stunning how you can change people's lives through the financial planning. I just got back from Chicago from taking the CPWA classes. I haven't taken the exam yet. Um, Mike Tapley, who works here full, full-time as a partner, is a CFP. And then we use delegated planners for you know planners with 30 years experience with all our clients. So the really life-changing stuff happens on the planning side. Like tax planning can save hundreds of thousands, if in some families' cases, millions of dollars. But trust mm-hmm. and estate planning and legacy planning, as you know, can save- Yep fortunes. So that's where we start as a firm. The journal made it public, you know, four or five months ago in an article that the average advisor right now spends less than 10% of their time on investments. Now that really worked for the last 10 years, right? And I'm a buy and hold person. I am, you know, a low fee tax efficiency, check those boxes first, total believer. But if you have a client who just exited their business six, 12 months ago, we, we've closed three $10 million clients in the last like four months. So if you have a client who exit a business or has an event $10 million 12 months ago, and you're looking at Vanguard's cap asset pricing model, it's really hard to just put them into a model. Right. They're, they're just a different level of investor, different thought process, different situation. Maybe they were never liquid in their lives until this exit. Maybe they just have retirement, 401k money. They had paying for the kids' education, 529s, and this is their only liquidity event. I think, and I could be wrong, Michael, but the next 10 years are not going to be as easy as the last 10 years on the investment side. So we do, I do a lot of investment work. I do not remotely want people to think I'm trading stocks or anything like that. To answer your question, virtual family office, what do we do? You know, it's the investment consulting, advanced planning, you know, all your cash flow planning, your insurance planning, all your trust in estate and legacy planning, you know, exit planning for business owners, you know, planning your charitable giving. We basically become your outsourced CFO or CEO of your family's financial life, right? So protect your wealth, increase your cash flow, secure your legacy, make sure nothing sneaks up on you. You know, discovery meetings, solidifying goals and values consult on large purchases, behavioral coaching, where I I personally am a huge believer in investing as a psychology game. It's not an IQ game. And then flag issues where we need outside pros, right? That's where the virtual family office comes in. We're partnered with great CPA firms. We're partnered with great law firms on the trust and estate side. And when our, quite frankly, a lot of our clients need corporate advice and everything else. So we really become the one-stop shop for their financial lives. I think you said like, so you, you have your, or working in your CPA, CPWA designation, your, your partner's a CFP, but then I think you said you, you also use delegated planning, which is an outsourced financial planning support firm. So like, what do they do? Like, how do they fit into this picture? 
Yeah, so they've been a huge partner of ours. Carrie Beasley-Jones is our representative there. They are heavily involved in all of our clients' financial planning. Mike Topley here works hand-in-hand with them on all the financial plans. Uh, We deliver the plans and are face-to-face with the clients. Obviously, Delegated Planners is not. They're doing all the the behind-the-scenes planning with us in eMoney. We use eMoney. I do want to say, I mean, I'm getting my CPWA to be fluid and understand and be able to speak to clients in the language of planning, but that is not my strong point. We'll be hiring more planners. I, I just want to, I want to be conversant in it. I want to understand it as much as possible, but I'm not going to be the person executing, you know, doing all the due diligence and loading up e-money and doing the plans myself. But I think I have an obligation to my clients, a fiduciary obligation to really understand it as well as possible. But, you know, everyone else is doing the nitty gritty of the planning. So functionally, they're essentially like outsourced para planning. Like, yep, we'll gather the data and then we'll give it to you, and you can input it the data into eMoney, build up the scenarios, produce the 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 plan, and then we we get back a fully prepped plan in eMoney, and then we can go and do the delivery with clients. They're loading in the eMoney. They're doing Mike and Carrie are doing the projections and the scenario planning. And then we're, we'll have a prep meeting before the client meeting and we'll all go over it together. Because I was going to say, like the, these for a lot of us that have like <laughs> spent maybe an irrationally large number of hours in financial planning software over the years, like there there is this effect of when you build the plan in the planning software yourself, you, you really, like you really know the client situation, the details, because you you know, you're you're immersed into the the data and the details as you're building the plan. So I was kind of wondering, like how how do you make sure you've got confidence that you know all the details of what's in the plan if you're not building it in the software? So the answer is, you, like, you've got a separate prep meeting. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like, how does that work? Sure. So Mike Topley here is working hand in hand with Delegated on the plans from the beginning. Right. So we'll have a discovery meeting. We'll get the checklist of all the data. We'll get all the data loaded into eMoney. And then Mike is involved in the plans with the families from beginning to end. It's more me coming in midway through or back end to really understand where we're going with this as a firm. And then I'll layer on the investment part of it uh, as my job as CIO. Who are your typical clientele? 75% 75% small business owners, 25% corporate. Corporate meaning like executive types. Correct, yeah. Mostly okay. mostly uh, stockholder, stockholding executives. And is there a typical like income net worth? I mean, just, or, or I guess even overall, like what's the asset base of the firm and, and how many clients are with the firm? Yep. So we have 160 million in fee paying AUM. I think a little over 100 million in, in assets under advisement. And I think we just closed a very nice account today. So I'll say 160 million AUM, 180 million assets under advisement, and it's about 60 families, 60 households. Okay. So it's so like typical household is a, is a multi million dollar household. Correct. Okay. I think two to 10 million is like 97% of high net worth in the US if my numbers are correct. And we're, we're in the two to $25 million market primarily. Okay. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business as you've been going down this road? Yeah. So like any small business owner, but especially the advisor business, and maybe it's because, you know, we have the 
real estate product and everything. But certainly the legal bills surprised me and the amount of legal work we needed. It's not like I was naive to legal bills and the way law firms bill. And we have really good law firms, all positive things to say about the law firms we use. But uh, that was certainly a surprise, the amount of legal bills and accounting bills uh, to be honest, are by far our biggest bills. And then so just a lot of work on the compliance. And even though uh, we started out with RA in a box and then we layer on side by side with RA in a box outside uh, legal teams, right? So uh, right. just a lot of compliance. For, for, the, for the real estate side in particular. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's all all handled by it. So, so I mean, how like how how much cost is getting added to the firm with just all the legal and accounting work to be able to do this real estate sleeve? Oh, the startup cost on the real estate fund, legal cost, compliance cost, everything is six figures. Does the six figures at least start with a one? Yes, it absolutely okay. starts with the one. Yeah. Feels a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, tech uh, yes. It's a good thing there's a lot of compliance in our business because, you know, anything where yeah. there's this amount of money at risk, you know, look what's going on in the crypto world right now. Uh, anything yeah. where there's this amount of money at, at, at risk, it's a good thing. But it's it's a burden on the advisor side. Even though you have outsourced compliance, even though you have outsourced legal, there's, there's a fair amount of stuff that we have to do to stay ahead of it. But we're really happy with it so far. But I guess the flip side is, you know, I, I mean, relative to most firms, like let's have a six figure bill to be able to offer real estate for clients is like a really big number and a big, yeah, a big pill to swallow. But the flip side is like, this is part of how you manage to differentiate working with multi-million dollar households. Like th this is literally how you've been able to help differentiate with very affluent clients is you are offering a thing that most other advisory firms don't. Yeah, I will said, Michael, and, 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 you know, my experience, and again, we've been very lucky. We've had a lot of referrals. We had three 10 million plus families closed in the last three or four months. My, my experience is, yes, you need those differentiators. And my clients that I brought on, on the higher net worth side, want to hear more creative stuff. They want to hear more ideas. They want to see differentiators. They're not going to be satisfied just being plugged into a model especially in the current market environment we're in now. It just would not, it, it, maybe Philadelphia is different, but it would not fly with the large majority of our clients. And I want to reiterate again, when I'm not, we're not trading stocks, we're not doing anything crazy. We're just trying to find small ways to differentiate and add alpha over the long term. So what was the low point for you on this journey? The low point for me on this journey, I guess the, I, I did have a, a portfolio that was pretty specialized that was just a one-year portfolio and we did really well and there are still clients and they, they, there's still clients on the real estate side, someone who's been tremendous to me and a mentor and everything, but uh, we didn't hit the home run that, that we were trying to hit. It was a very specialized client, very specialized portfolio. We did really well. We beat the S&P handily. But we were kind of going for the home run. They came to me and asked. So just like, what was the thing? I mean, what's the what was the deal? What was the investment? Yeah, yeah it was a long short equity portfolio. So we were we were short a lot of the stuff that you see imploding now, uh, things that were trading for above twenty times sales, and we were long like the cheapest stuff in the world. And we did well, but it was an ask from a large client for a specialized portfolio due to the extremely unique environment we were in coming out of COVID. And I want to be clear, I don't do this for a living. I don't do this for anyone else. This is someone who is in the investment business and has 
execute it and exit it, three large businesses. So one regret is we didn't do a better job on that. But great relationships, still a client. Other regrets, we really don't have any. And that's not a huge regret, by the way, because we did a lot of due diligence and, and we decided, myself and the client, we avoided crypto, we avoided a volatility bet, we avoided all these things that wouldn't have worked. So it, it wasn't all negative. It was a tremendous educational process for both of us. We did a lot of calls together or once once a week, not a lot, and and really picked each other's brains and intellectual mm. capital. But no real, believe it or not, no real regrets outside of that. Maybe I should have not been overly conservative and I should have hired someone else already uh, to, to give us more time for business development. But like any other advisor, I think you got to learn that as you go. But it's easy to say in hindsight, but maybe we should have hired somebody already to do some of the uh, management on the back end of the real estate and management on the back end with clients. What do you know now about serving the you know high net worth marketplace that you wish you knew six or seven years ago when you were coming out of the trading world and, and into this environment? I guess I was surprised that there's still a lot of bad product out there. I guess I was naive with the world going the ETFs and indexes. Really, things getting much more efficient for the retail investor. Really, just the cost of trading is free. Indexes, there's an ETF for everything. At the end of the day, there's still a lot of product that's sold for for you know sometimes conflicted commissions and everything. I did not have knowledge, even though I was from the institutional world, how much of that was still a large part of high net worth investors' portfolios. And uh, I think we can make we make a huge differentiator there. It was just. I learned that at my previous firm that there's still a lot of bad products sold out there and high net worth investors really are, you know, again, we're huge behavioral finance believers and storytelling is still a massive part of the business and they want a story. They want, they want something different than everybody else mm. they see at a club or in their social lives or in their work lives. And these stories continue to get told. And unfortunately, a lot of times it is uh, a poor investment over the long term. So were there particular investment types or investment vehicles or, or, or structures or offerings that were like showing up for you as, as surprisingly bad product in your experience? Hedge funds, for sure. Hmm. It's a less prevalent now, even though hedge funds assets are still growing, but coming out of 08, the super high net worth world got completely sucked into the hedge fund sale, right? And I don't blame them. Yeah. They were scared to death coming out of 08. No one in our generations has ever been through their business valuation going down, their portfolios going down 50%, their business valuation going down. And even the, even as a liquid investment to begin with, it was unsellable. Their real estate, their personal property being down 20, 30% all at once. So the storytelling of, hey, we have this great new vehicle that protects your downside and gives you upside capture, uh, and you never have to go through something low, like 08 again. And again, I, I want to say this again, there's, there's a lot of good hedge fund managers out there. Unfortunately, we went from a couple hundred hedge fund managers to over 10,000, and uh, right. the alpha has kind of disappeared. So that would be one for sure. And then there's a lot of good private equity managers out there, but there's also, you know, the 10-year lockups and, you know, the fees and how transparent the fees are and everything else uh, makes some of those 
if you don't get the right manager there, just like if you don't get the right manager in real estate, uh, it gets really complex on the reporting. Yeah. It gets really complex on trying to figure out the fees. I mean, Michael, I've been in the business 25 years. I've reviewed private equity funds and private equity individual deals, and I cannot figure out the true IRR or their true fees for the life of me. Ouch. But same as same caveat with real estate, there's some awesome private yeah. equity managers out there that have phenomenal returns and phenomenal transparency. You just got to partner with the right ones. So what advice would you give newer advisors looking to come into the business today? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, yes, you have to learn a lot about the business and yes, you have to learn a lot about planning, but I would pair that with general like world knowledge, like reading the journal and Barron's and the Times and reading personally as widely as possible books, not just articles. Because as you go up the uh, high net worth scale, you're going to have to be conversant in what's going on in the world. You're going to have to be conversant in investments. You're going to have to be conversant in private equity and and how exits happen and the capital stack and all these other things. And the best way to do that, in my experience, I had great mentors, uh, is read as much as humanly possible. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. The second thing that most new people, period, not just advisors, but I think advisors even more so, you need to really get self-awareness. You need to understand your personality types. You need to understand your personal investment biases, your personal investment personality type on top of your general personality type. You really need to know yourself in order to be a great financial advisor. You, you need a master's degree in self-awareness to be a really, really good advisor. You need great listening skills and you need to know yourself and know your biases. And then I would say build the relationship first. We help as many people as humanly possible, not trying to just get them as clients. We, we have a great network in the Philadelphia area. Anybody who calls me for anything, I would try to help them out. I mean, just build the relationships first rather than sell first. And then your life's going to be decided by the books you read and the people you meet. And a lot of it's going to be the five people you spend the most time with. I know I'm stealing that off somebody. I forget who, but in my life, that's turned out to be very true. And so it's the people you meet, the people you spend your time with, the books you read. So do it well. I love that. I love that. So, so Matthew, as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. So you built this wonderful career through the industry and now uh, you've grown very rapidly in launching your firm and and building up to a great base of high net worth clients. And so the the business is is certainly successful and going well. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. So I think I listened to enough of your podcast that I, I, I did think about this question a lot. So the first part of it's kind of the easy part is my family first, right? My wife and two children, are they happy, stable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's by far the most important thing. And, you know, they would probably vote three to zero that the only one who's a little crazy in the house is me and everybody else is fine. So my family, I want to make sure I take care of first. And my extended family, I have a huge family. I'm the youngest of six children. And, you know, I have a lot of nieces and nephews and everything. But uh, the second part of the answer is, you know, a lot of what I view as success is personal freedom and uh, having your own firm, especially an advisor firm with recurring revenue and quarterly fees gives you a lot of freedom. 
Uh, I love what I do. Uh, you know, I'm doing research all weekend, reading about the markets all weekend, things like that. Everyone I interview about retirement, it's never the work. You know, they get burned out by the people. So when you have your own firm like this, you can kind of eliminate having to deal with passive aggressive or manipulative, depletious people like narcissists and everything else that are out there in the corporate yeah. world. So it's kind of a little bit, maybe too much of a psychological answer for your question, but that allows you to be personally happy, right? That you don't have to have all these passive aggressive, depletious people in your life that are doing underhanded things to advance themselves because you had now have this freedom of owning your own firm and making your own decisions. And that leads to physical health too, right? A bestseller right now is the body tells the story or the, the body keeps score. And, you know, our, our mental health and physical health are so tied to each other. And I'm 52 years old now. And I believe in that philosophy and, and, and the freedom that this business allows is great for, for that part of it. And then last, just impact on society, right? For, for me, it's all about education. And I'm a first-generation college student. So we have a major crisis in this country on the education side. So that's my passion on leaving a long-term impact. But lastly, I would just say, what's your impact on society going to be as a huge def definition of success for me? And I, I would en encourage all the other advisors out there. Uh, I know you're huge on financial education and I know everybody has a passion on the charity side, but I think all of us as advisors should embrace somewhere in your community education because we're we're going a little bit backwards in some regards. Well, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm a huge fan of the show, so it was quite the honor to get the call to be on. I'm here for any questions, any, any other advisor or anything want to reach out to me. My blog is uh, www.matttopley.com and you can contact me through there or through the website lansingadv.com. Awesome, awesome. And we'll have links out to that in the show notes as well. So this is episode 292. And if you go to kitsis.com slash 292, we'll have links out to Matt's site and, and Matthew's blog. So thank you again, Matthew, for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content, Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.